This morning, we are going to contemplate the question again, why did the Word become flesh? Why did the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, become a man? And today we're going to consider that out of Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 16. And I've titled the sermon, Destroying the Power of Death and the Devil. I'm going to read Hebrews 2, 10 through 16 to include a little more of that context. That's found on page 1002 of the Blue Bible, if you want to grab and follow along from the text. Hebrews 2, 10 through 16. All right. That's, that's why. Some glasses on. I can read the numbers. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. So back in the day, a film named Moneyball, based on a book by the same title, considered how a major league team, namely the 2002 Oakland Athletics, were able to qualify for the postseason, a time when only four teams from each league moved on. With the smallest payroll, it was 35% of the greatest payroll in Major League Baseball. Not only that, but the Oakland Athletics that year set the, major, the American League record for most consecutive game one with 20, a 20-game winning streak. This was because Billy Bean, the general manager at the time, was drafting and making trades for players based on purely statistical analysis, which other experts didn't realize were important. Billy Bean is quoted at one point in the film as... His team is about to play the visiting team, and there is a relief pitcher in the other team's bullpen who is very talented, and he doesn't want to face him. And he says, I don't want Rincon pitching against me tonight. Tell him to change clothes and send him over. He traded for Ricardo Rincon just before the game so that rather than pitching against him, he would pitch for him. Now, that reference to changing clothes is about changing uniforms. To play for a particular team, one needs to put on that team's uniform. We are considering the question today, why did the Son of God take on flesh? A simplified answer is to say, 
to help the team of humanity win, he needed to put on the uniform of flesh and blood. So where are we going this morning? The word became flesh to partake of the same nature of the children, to destroy the one who has the power of death, to deliver all those who enslaved by fear of death so that the offspring of Abraham may flourish by faith in Christ and forsake their fear of death. The word became flesh, that's where we're going to start, to partake of the same nature as the children. And we see this in the first part of verse 14 in our text. So let's begin with some review. The Son of God and the children of God are already brothers. They're siblings, but they do not share the same nature. Look at verse 10 with me, which we just, which we just read. It was fitting that he whom, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he was bringing many sons to glory, already considered sons. Verse 11, all have one source. And he was not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 13, behold, I and the children God has given me, which we also see quoted in Isaiah 8.18, behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So those God has chosen to save are already the children God has given me, namely to Jesus. So Jesus, at Christmas, now puts on the uniform of humanity by partaking in our flesh and blood nature, since that is who we are, so that he could do that in order to rescue us. Election, this choosing, is not salvation but it guarantees salvation. So, why is this necessary? A bit of on the negative side. Why is it necessary that Jesus took on our nature, flesh and blood? Well, God gives humanity dominion over creation, not angels, not any other creature. He gives dominion over creation to humanity. We see this in Genesis 1, especially verses 5 and 8 in the creation account. But what does humanity do? We enslave ourselves to sin and death. We do not dominate. Death does. We sin and we fall short. And now we're enslaved to sin rather than exercising dominion, filling the earth and subduing it. Creation falls and we disappear from our place. God gives humanity his promises and his covenants. And what do we do? We reject and suppress the knowledge of God. We break covenant. And we do not believe his promises. We see this all over scripture. Genesis 3, in Exodus, in the Judges, in the Kings, in Romans 1. We, ex- we suppress the knowledge of God. We exchange the glory of God to worship ourselves and creation. God gives humanity his law, and what do we do? Man disobeys God's law. We rebel against God's law. We are a losing team. And humanity comes, and to humanity comes all the penalties 
of disobedience, which is death. We need a superior man to accomplish where we have failed. Jesus puts on our uniform of flesh and blood and joins with us to make us a winning team. Jesus exerts dominion and does not give in to the devil. We see that in Matthew, where the devil promises him all the kingdoms of the earth if he would only bow the knee to the devil. And Jesus rejects the offer. He rejects the shortcut because to gain all the kingdoms of the earth but bow your knee to the devil, he would be in no different a place than we are. And our world would be in no different shape than it is today. So we needed Jesus to resist the devil and exert dominion. Jesus obeys and fulfills the law and keeps covenant with the Father. Jesus makes all the promises of God, yes and amen, to us in him. So that is what Jesus is doing for us. He is succeeding where we have failed. Why is it necessary that the word became flesh? There's a positive side. It's not just to do what we failed to do, but representation requires authentic identification. When Jesus partakes of the same things as we see in this, in this passage, he has solidarity with us, as Caleb preached last week, in every aspect. He takes on weaknesses to experience hunger, fatigue, aches, pain, loss. Jesus' humanity must be genuine and real and full and complete, but he must also be fully and genuinely divine, as we read in our catechistic uh, recitation. We see in the hymns that we've been singing, let all mortal flesh keep silent, Lord of lords in human vesture or human nature. Or a song we're going to sing just prior to Will and Eden being baptized, come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. Jesus becomes the man, the second and the last Adam. Important. The second Adam, there was no Adam since Adam before Christ, and he is the last Adam. There is no one still to come. Jesus is second and last. He must also be divine because simply partaking of our nature is not enough. Jesus has work to do. He is now qualified to pay the penalty of death as fully God and fully man. The penalty that comes to humanity, he becomes human to pay. That is what he's doing. That is why um, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, partakes of flesh and blood. So what was this work? What did he do? The word became flesh to destroy the one who has the power of death. And we see that in the second half of our verse in 14. So let's consider for a moment then if he becomes a man and he comes to destroy the one who has the power of death, then what is death and what is the power of death that we're considering? Death I would argue in Scripture, 
is equals judgment, condemnation, and punishment. We see this in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Death is judgment, condemnation, punishment. Death is separation from God. It is spiritual and physical death. Desires, responses to circumstances, thoughts, and our actions misalign and move away from God. All of it, disease, decay, disability, suffering, pain, futility, and loss, until we finally physically die. It is a long, slow, and painful death. Death is separation of body from soul. Physical death leads directly to eternal death. You do not pass go, and you do not collect $200, right? We see that also in Scripture. Just in Hebrews 9.27, just a little later in the letter that we're looking at, and just as it is a portion for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So physical death then leads immediately to eternal death. It is judgment. It is condemnation. We often hear this phrase, a fate worse than death, right? This describes something that is too horrible to bear. A person would prefer to die rather than endure a particular something. Is, is this true? According to Wikipedia, the phrase first appeared around 1810, but it was popularized in a novel by Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan of the Apes. I don't know if you've heard of Tarzan. I had all 24 books in the series. I read them. I love them. It's just pulp fiction, but it was Tarzan. Good stuff. But in 1914, in his book, Tarzan of the Apes, he writes this. The ape threw her roughly across his broad, hairy shoulders and leaped back into the trees, bearing Jane Porter away toward a fate a thousand times worse than death. And that, that got traction in the popular culture. I think death and suffering is misunderstood. God himself is misunderstood if we believe there is a fate worse than death. In our sin, we willfully and intentionally misunderstand reality by suppressing the truth so as to reject and forget God. So more on this when we consider our fear of death. We do this in order to become gods unto ourselves. We see this in Romans 18 through 22. That's the exchange we make. I think we misunderstand death and God himself if we think there's a fate worse than death. So if death is judgment, condemnation, then how is it that the devil has the power of death, as we see in our text? How is that? Isn't isn't God the one who has the power of death? Doesn't God number our days? And doesn't Jesus raise the dead even during his earthly ministry? Here's how I think this works. The devil attempts to force God to condemn his creation, chiefly human beings. The devil and other fallen angels are our enemies. Look at Luke 1.71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
and the devil certainly falls into that category. That's who he is. The devil, the devil's power is that he is, in the, he is the father of lies and he is the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of God's people. He lies and he lures humanity into sin and thereby death and judgment. And once guilty, he accuses us before God day and night. That is the power of Satan. Because God is just, sin obligates God to condemn sinners from his own character. It's not an outside compulsion. His own justice requires him, obligates him to condemn sinners. Sinful humans are obligated to be condemned. Death comes to us as earned. The devil uses God's justice as a weapon against God's creation, especially humanity, the very image of God. It's an entrapment scheme. It's just like a child who lures their siblings to disobey their parents in some well-known rule and then tattles on them to get them in trouble. Look at Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was the favorite, he was the favorite counselor of the king. And all the other officials hated him. And they wanted to get rid of him, but he never did anything wrong. They could never get rid of him. So they convinced the king to make a law and to write it in the laws of the Medes and Persians that could not be changed, that everyone had to worship the king's God and worship the king himself. Daniel, of course, who worships the true God, Yahweh continues to do so and continues to pray faithfully. And he's praying where he can be seen. And they take advantage of that and they go to the, they go to the king and say, look, Daniel, he's disobeying your law. And the punishment for disobeying this law is death. And the king is obligated, though he hates doing it, he puts Daniel in the lion's den. It is entrapment. This is what the devil does to us. He lures us, he lies to us, and then he accuses us. And he's trying to force God's hand to judge us because that's what God's justice calls for. This is how the devil now exercises dominion over us. We see Jesus resisting that, resisting the devil and his domination in Matthew 4. In the death of Christ, God becomes the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God will not have his hand forced. God will not be required to condemn those whom he wishes to save. So Jesus Christ comes and dies so that the penalty of sin that comes to humanity is paid and God may now save whom he wills without harm to his own justice. He's taken the very weapon that Satan uses against us away from him. That's what he does. This is how Jesus' death destroys death and the devil. Jesus pays humanity's penalty as a man so that God may justify his children who deserve death. We reached that, we, we read that, we, we sang this, let all mortal flesh keep silence, that the powers of hell may vanish. And indeed, they are. <clears throat> Jesus binds the strong man 
He says this in Matthew 12, 29. How can somebody enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man is the devil and the plunder is us. He is plundering the devil's prizes, forcing God to judge by binding the strong man, taking away his power, and he is saving us willy-nilly. He's just saving people because now he can do that with no harm to his justice. In what sense then, let's consider this question, in what sense then does Jesus destroy death since we still die? Our text says Jesus destroys death and the devil. So, in what sense does he do this? And in the text here, the word destroy is used to mean nullify, not annihilate. Jesus is, Jesus has, is destroying death. He is nullifying its power, but he's not doing away with death yet. Here again, we find ourselves in the already and not yet of this time between the first and second comings of Christ. Death still occurs, as we all well know and experience all the time. <clears throat> People have died in this church, so many, so recently, and we will continue to do so. But death, though it still occurs, the sting of death, condemnation and punishment has been removed in Christ. Death is an enemy and painful, but it is not ultimate. Rather, it leads to being with the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Think of our hymn, which we'll be singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We'll sing it later. Just pay attention to the words of that song as we sing it. But one day, in the not yet, death will be no more. If we look at Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That, that is the end of death. This is one reason why I relish Advent. So much because our anticipation of Christ's second coming resembles the anticipation we remember for his first coming. I don't have to guess what anticipation for the Lord's coming was like at Christmas because I am longing in anticipation for that return and coming of Christ now. And I hope we all are as well. So as we've considered why the Lord took on flesh, as we consider his destruction of the power of death and the one who holds it, the devil, he's come to do one other thing. The word became flesh to deliver all those enslaved by the fear of death. That is in verse 15. But how are we enslaved by fear of death? We operate to distance ourselves, dismiss, distract, and deny death. Death is acknowledged universally as inevitable. So how do we possibly function with death looming on the horizon? The modern psychologies would tell us we need to find meaning for ourselves. 
Yes, of course life is meaningless. Of course there's, there's nothing external to us that determines meaning. And of course death is surely going to come. And of course we're ultimately alone. But still, figure out something that makes you happy and pursue that purpose. Make that your purpose in life. And you can find happiness and just ignore all those hard, harsh realities that we know are absolutely inevitable. Or we make jokes. Anyone, if you've bought, if you've had or you're buying this year a far side calendar, in that calendar I guarantee that there are going to be panels that depict eternal punishment, hell, and demons, and people suffering. And it's going to make a joke out of it. And they're funny. I like them. I, I find humor. They, Gary Larson's a funny guy. But we make jokes to avoid the stark reality of death. Or Woody Allen, <clears throat> a humorist of our times, he, this is a quote from him. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. We make jokes about death. I think the fear of death is ultimately we fear approaching God. Like our foreparents, Adam and Eve, we run, we hide, and we cover up. And when that doesn't work, we lie and we blame. We point the finger at somebody else. And this is how we avoid approaching a holy God when we deserve death and judgment. <clears throat> the difference between fear and confidence is like approaching a light socket. If you've ever stuck your finger in a live light socket, it doesn't go well for you, right? That electricity is strong, it's powerful, it shocks you, may, may even kill you. It's dangerous. So you can fear the light socket and stay completely away from it and never go near it and live your life in the darkness. Or you can move with confidence, respecting and fearing what the power of the light socket is, but we can also put a light bulb in and then we actually will have light. We can approach God with a, a different kind of fear, not a dread of judgment, but with a fear of who he is and a confidence we can approach him. Think of the way Mr. and Mrs. Beaver describe Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? He is not safe but he is good, right? That is who God is. He is not safe, but he is good. <clears throat> there is a way to approach God. We don't have to avoid him. We do not have to fear death. Or we simply redefine death to be an escape. In Greco-Roman times, uh, in their world, the fear of death was recognized as a form of slavery, and one overcomes this fear of death by recognizing that death brings relief from suffering. A quote from Orestes by Euripides, a play at the time, said, Are you a slave and afraid of death, which might set you free from suffering? Even in that time, people thought death was a relief. Death was an escape from suffering. And like medical assistance in dying today, has anything changed? We pretend that death is a relief, that death is an escape. And I'm going to tell you, teens in this room, everyone who is listening, anyone who is suffering, self-harm and death is not a solution. 
it is not a solution. Death apart from Christ is judgment and condemnation and punishment. Death in Christ, we can honor Him and love Him and glorify Him in how we live our lives, how we experience our pain and suffering. We can die well, showing glory to God and not losing our joy when life becomes ultimately hard. Everything we do, I think, is impacted by fear of death and judgment. We suppress the truth. We deny the existence of God. We distract ourselves with worldly pleasures, whether it's movies or books or video games or food or sex. We just distract ourselves. We find that meaning in life. We, in something, anything other than reality. And not that those are bad things, but when we abuse them, when we misuse them, when we try and distract ourselves from the truth, we work hard, we put our nose to the grindstone, we make lots of money, we live pleasurable lives, we go on fantastic vacations, we do everything we can to find pleasure in this life. I think that's the result of fear of death. We seek control apart from God by determining our own allegiances, our own religion, youth serums and schemes, even gender identification and our time and manner of death. We seek to control our lives. We seek to pretend that we have control over who we are and what will happen to us. And we sear our consciences with self-justifications, self-actualization and excuses. Yet, guilt Shame and futility derail all of our attempts to escape death. Think of the song we sang, O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And that word pining, we often use it in the modern language if we use it at all today. I mean, I don't know the last time anyone said, I'm pining, pining for a good burger, pining for a great pizza, pining for that trip. We don't, we don't use that word very often, but it, it denotes longing. We long for something. We long for something that we, that we may not find ourselves being able to get. <clears throat> but at the time, pining had a different flavor. It was, pining was regret, remorse, enduring punishment. The world was languishing in sin and error. We were regretting our path. We were feeling the weight of death. We were pining away in our guilt and our shame, regret and enduring suffering as punishment. So we come to good news. Yes, finally, in the third Sunday of Advent, our theme should be joy. We have good news to take joy in. The offspring of Abraham can flourish by faith in Christ and forsake their fear of death. That's the point of verse 16. It starts out, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now first let's say, who aren't the offspring of Abraham? Who are they not? Well, in the text, they are not angels. The devil and the fallen angels are our enemies. The devil is an angel. He has fallen, and he is our enemy, perhaps our, our chief en- enemy outside of ourselves. And for surely, what does it mean for surely? For surely. 
This is another argument for why Jesus needed to become human to save us, in that by not partaking in the nature of angels, they are not delivered. It's because he took on the nature of humanity that humanity is delivered. He's on our team. He's not on the angel's team in that sense. Now, the scripture does speak of elect angels, but elect angels seem to simply not sin. Elect children are rescued from our sin. Not, and then, not even every member of humanity is the offspring of Abraham. It is a specific subset of humanity, the offspring of Abraham. So then, who are the offspring of Abraham? That seems to be a very important question. And how do we become one? I mean, if I'm not one, I want to be one. Because it's only the offspring of Abraham who flourish and can forsake the fear of death. So who are they? Let's find out. The offspring of Abraham are the children spoken of earlier. That's why we started reading from verse 10. The children that God has given to Christ are the offspring of Abraham. That's who they are. And from Isaiah 41:14, as we looked at that passage, we also see, let's just, I'm just going to flip there real quick. Let's take a look at Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Right? The offspring of Abraham. They're mentioned here. And this is who God is helping. This is who he helps. And there's similarities between the text in Isaiah 41 and our text in Hebrews 2. The offspring of Abraham are mentioned, and that God helps the offspring of Abraham. And this word helps from the Hebrew and from Isaiah, he renders aid. Christ, literally, it, he takes hold of, right? We see this word in other places. We see it in Jude 23, where we can snatch others out of, um, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Or we see it in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now there's different words being used here, but it, the, the, the idea is the same, that God is snatching us. He is helping us. He's taking hold of us. He's pulling us out of the way of the train of judgment, which is death. And he is saving us. Or as we read earlier, Matthew 12, 29, he is plundering the house of the strong man. He is scooping up everything he wants and taking it because he has bound the strong man with his death and now he is plundering his house. He is saving his people from God's judgment because the power to judge is not really the devil's. The devil is trying to co-opt God's justice to condemn his people. And Jesus has come so that that penalty is paid and God is the just and the justifier. And he is snatching, transferring, plundering left and right. So let us flourish by faith in Christ and forsake fear of death in our desires, in our thoughts, our emotional responses to circumstances, and our actions. Jesus joined our team at Christmas when he took on flesh and blood. 
Now we are called to join his team. We are called to join team Jesus and put on Christ's uniform, Christ himself, as we do when we place our faith for life and death in Christ. We are joined to Christ, as Eden said in her testimony, and we are the offspring of Abraham. For the offspring of Abraham are the offspring of faith. Let's look at Galatians 3, 7 through 9, and and verse 14. Know then that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And lest you think that that's what was their faith in, it was Old Testament times. Verse 14 is clear. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith in Christ, trusting him for life, trusting him in his death, that our penalty is paid and that we can approach God in confidence, that we can be reunited, reunited to him, that we can commune with him because we have union with Christ by faith. We become the offspring of Abraham who are the very people that God and Christ help when he becomes a man at Christmas, and he dies on the cross so that our sins are forgiven, so death can be done away with, so that we can enjoy all of the promises and covenant of God, yes and amen, in Christ. So, we are going to see this demonstrated in just a few moments as Will and Eden are baptized. We've heard their testimonies. We are going to now see this physical representation of dying with Christ and being raised in him and being submerged and completely in Christ and be rescued from our sins. Baptism is a beautiful, beautiful ceremony where we see this take place. It does not save us, but it shows us what salvation looks like viscerally. So let us together then move in courage toward Christ in faith today, and death can no longer enslave you by its fear of judgment and condemnation. It will change how we live. It will change how we go forward from here. It will change how we engage with our world around us. It will change how we engage our circumstances. It will change how we think about things. It will change how we feel about things. It will change what we want in life. It will change how we act in life. The holy life comes from a fear of the Lord rather than a fear of death. And we do that by faith in Christ. If you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, as Will and Eden have testified, then by all means do so. I urge you, love God, believe in Christ, bow the knee to him, and you will be saved. Death no longer needs to enslave you. That's my hope this Christmas, is that we will not just celebrate with colors and baubles and bells and song, but we will celebrate by believing in the one who came, that we would be saved from our fear of death and embrace the life-giving fear of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
as we witness baptisms today. Father, the, the testimony of Will and Eden, let us follow in their footsteps if we have not, and let us reflect on our own salvation, our own conversion, our own baptisms as we see them be baptized among us. Father, we pray for faith in your Son. You came to defeat the one who has the power of death, the devil, so that we no longer must fear death, fear judgment, fear you. We, the accusations of the devil do not hold sway because you stand before the throne interceding for us every day and night. You never cease interceding for your children. You never cease saving us. You are plucking us out of the house of judgment. You're transforming us into the kingdom of your Son by faith in Christ. We can receive the blessings promised to Abraham and to his offspring. Father, would we relish this? Would we remember it? Would we treasure the Son and what he has done for us in our lives? And if we do not yet treasure him, Father, I pray that the beauty of Christ and what, who he is and what he has done will land on each one of us. Father, that we might turn from our sin and believe. And Father, in doing so, we would join the body of Christ and that we would experience renewal in our lives. Father, we would face suffering, trials, temptations, and even death differently because of your Son. We ask these things in his precious name by which we approach the throne of God with confidence and not with dread. Amen.